All right, welcome to another episode of Not Investment Advice. This is Bilal Zaidi, and we've got the boys in the house. Jack Butcher with his merch drippy as hell on his head, and we got Trung Fan, uh, lead writer at the Hustle, who's also got his own version of drippy um, merch on his head. He's got an amazing new headset that we've Yo, been talking I saw about since boy, last uh, week. Our boy Packy has the same thing, man. Everybody's on. Everybody knows what's up. You're Your hands trend. are free. Your hands are free, bro. <laughs> Look I'm at this. Together. Yo, dude, it's so it's shit. I'll be honest with you, man. I like, like the a last new man. Dude, it's just I'm so stiff before, like with the mic. You're just like, oh, like fucking like just do whatever I fucking want, man. <laughs> I love <laughs> it's amazing. You might just stand up again. You might do the jackass yeah, thing for yeah. episode zero. <laughs> All right, so let's let people know what we're talking about today because we've got some heavy edge of the internet stuff to kick us off. We're going to be talking about the future of NFTs, what it represents. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the power of memes and the meme API and a little update on the toads, toad life and what CCO licensing could mean for crypto um, and potentially public domain brands as well. So a whole section on that. And then we've got Fun Fact Fan is back. And we've got some uh, chatter around SBF and FTX. Sam Lo- Bankman Freed, 29 years old, sitting on 23 billion. Yeah, yeah. It's on, in the Drake lyric, exactly. Yeah, bro. <laughs> so let's, let's just kick it off. Um, look, uh, if you're in the Telegram group and uh, you've been following along, there was this amazing thread, thread um, that was posted by, what was his name? Is it 6529? Punk. Punk six five two nine is his Twitter handle. Yeah, okay. is that so his Twitter punk handle? Also? We don't know. Is that the know. reference to the punk he owns? Like, how does Correct. that work? Okay, I assume so. Yeah. So this guy has a deep, deep thread, and we would be here for two, three hours just discussing that one thread. So we won't have time to go into all of it, but we'll link to it, and uh, people can check it out. Um, but it kind of sparked off a few ideas around like what the future of NFTs is going to look like the importance of them and moving beyond just you know funny images of animals basically so like jack you you're the one who shared it so first of all like what resonated with you and was there anything to pull at uh, from that thread to kick us yeah. off yeah definitely uh recommend everybody read it top to bottom we're not going to do it justice this guy's like absolute mega giga brain like developed a developer in the original bitcoin protocol and has like a deep understanding of how like systems that work at this scale work, but or how how systems of this scale work. But the like the anchoring thought in this whole thread for me was I'll read the direct quote. He said, Memes are the apex object of society, but the architecture and machinery of society in 2021 is an Oracle or an Amazon database. And I think that that statement that's basically, I think we could spend half an hour talking about what that means or unpacking that idea of um, NFTs as this technical infrastructure to assign ownership to something that previously was really, really, really difficult, if not impossible, to assign ownership to. And he also, this is a a, a larger discussion. I think the, another reason the world is catching up on this is you guys know Richard Dawkins is he wrote a book in yeah he, 19- well he created the word meme yeah he defined the word meme in the 70s which is essentially like an idea that replicates organically between people that's not exactly his description of it but I think that gets to the essence of it hold on a second and, I, uh, sorry Jack I just want to add he's uh, an evolutionary biologist so he like he studies 
the nature of evolution. And for, I'm sure most are familiar, but the whole point is he wanted to show how ideas had the same mechanism as our genes do. Our genes pass from our parents to us and memes, which are the ideas that can pass between individuals, have the same capacity to take on a life of their own and increase through time and dominate society. My last thought before Jack gets back on is, Nietzsche said that humans don't have ideas, ideas have humans. That's kind of what this means, right? It's like, everybody thinks they have their own fucking ideas, but no, right. dude, like the idea owns you, right? Like Trying, you, we're four minutes in and like, you already got the Nietzsche quote coming yeah, out. Let's I know, go, but I'm just on. saying like, like if you're Buddhist or you're Christian or, or, you, or you follow the Islam, it's like, you didn't come up with that idea, right? That idea owns you. So that's it. That's all I'm gonna yeah, say. No, that's great. I want to frame it. That's great. And I think like 90% of people, if you ask them what a meme is, they'll say, oh, it's that thing with the, you know, the image that I've seen a bunch of times with different captions written on it. And I think one of the great examples that is in this thread is one of the most powerful memes ever is the American flag. Like that is a, like an encapsulation. Like you could show that to anybody on earth that's ever seen it or participates in society in any connected way. And they would have a an idea of what that means to them, right? It's just like this symbol that transmits a incredible amount of information. They're like massively high bandwidth vehicles of communication and everything is a meme. We talked about this before. It's like a presidential campaign is a meme. A freaking cereal box mascot is a yeah, meme. Brands, brands yeah. are memes as well. Yeah, the not money. the Nike money is, is a meme. The US yeah, dollar is a meme. meme. Bitcoin's a meme. Ethereum's yeah. a meme. Like all of these... Uh, all of these ideas can only be adopted through like people being able to spread them or talk about them, right? So the idea that the internet is now maybe more of a portion of most people's reality than the physical world and like the property you inhabit in the physical world does have a massive impact on you as a person and your outcome, both like financially, socially, all of those ideas. And I think what we're seeing that's that's amazing. I think we talked about this on the last episode is like people debating the, um, like the pros and cons of owning digital things and whether or not it should be, uh, you know, whether that should be allowed or whether it's necessary or whatever else. And uh, there's this just, Sorry, I just got someone just yeah. opened the door, so I lost my no, it's fine, it's Celia. We saw Celia. Um, editor, don't cut this. Keep it in. <laughs> oh, we definitely keep it in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the idea that um, the idea that owning the idea that owning a piece of an idea has been really difficult until now, right? And there's there's a, the debate on Twitter about NFTs and crypto and like ownership. There's a few specific people that pop into my mind when I hear like. Oh, owning an idea has been possible for ages, right? You can invest in Facebook tomorrow, but you could only invest in Facebook when it became a $15 billion public enterprise. Like you're not getting exposure to that from the beginning and you don't have a say in the trajectory of it as an owner. So while- And Jack, to clarify, sorry, just to, to go on that point, you're saying in contrast- the newer things we're seeing, like the the way we've talked about DAOs, where you mm-hmm. are able to join the DAO potentially, or, or even just as a community member within Discord, first of all, forget right. official DAOs, are, or like a token owner, and, and often a lot of these things have governance tokens too. The same way when you buy like stock 
uh, a public stock, you you like have the uh, the yearly meeting or whatever, right? Um, but you're saying it's just becoming easier. Is that what you're saying? It's, yeah, it's there's, a, a, there's, there's less a of a reduction. Barrier. There's a reduction in friction, but it's also it changes the game entirely. It's like you don't have to, you know, to get an early stake in Facebook, you need to be an employee or friends and family round of an employee likely, right? You had to be in the in a certain geographical location or you had to have a connection to a certain type of person to get exposure to this idea over the long term. Like I think the the acronyms and things are almost unhelpful because they they just trigger all these like basically low res versions of what they mean. Like you hear NFT and most people see like a Nyan cat or a you know picture of you know some dumb cartoon thing. But NFTs as an additional layer of functionality on top of a society that primar- primarily interoperates digitally is like a really fundamental shift in how in how the world works. And that thread that we referenced is really about like, how do you take that innovation and make it a favorable outcome for people versus like a cons- like these these platforms that have already consolidated so much power and ownership over the internet, just taking that to a whole new level. And I'm not going to be able to get into the like nuances that are in that six, five, two, nine thread about like, what are the, what are the different points in the decision tree where that can go wrong, but that they are outlined in that thread. Um, and then the other like very strange difference in, um, like the economics of all this stuff is the the rate at which an idea spreads if you have ownership in it is um there's an incentive for you to to spread these ideas earlier on so in nft communities right now those a lot of those things aren't um aren't the most inspiring or attractive objectives, right? Just make this thing more valuable because it's cool to have as your profile picture isn't necessarily like a force that's driving the human race forward in the short term. But you can imagine if this is like some decentralized um, group of biologists that are trying to figure out how to cure X, then you can imagine that the force behind that can really... uh, like if you can tap into knowledge from all over the world and build an organization that is borderless, et cetera, et cetera, that's where um, the idea of early ownership is uh, and aligning incentives much earlier in the journey can really do mental things. Yeah, man. I, mean, I think the other thing that really stood out to me in the, in the thread, um, he talks about TTPs, which stands for, was it third do you remember what it stands for? Sorry, uh, trusted third pies. Yeah. Um, and you kind of talked about it there, but we we don't realize like right now, pretty much everything we do in today's society is run by trusted third pies. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like it's got us to this point. Um, like in some cases, it can be a bad thing. It can be if, if the trusted third party uh, is evil. And I don't know if you count them as trusted anymore, but you know, um, like Google and Amazon, our trusted third parties with all of our data, right? Um, Facebook with all of our social interactions uh, and the bank with, you know, whatever's happening in, in the bank. Um, but I, I think what what uh, I was quite interested in reading this was just honing in on 
the importance of decentralization, which is obviously a bigger uh, topic. Um, I'm just curious from you guys, like having followed all this stuff that we've been following for so long, like is that is there a tangible uh, example or something where you say, oh, that is where I understood the reasoning why decentralization is a positive thing versus trusting a Google, trusting Chase Bank? Uh, because I know I know this is a bigger topic, but like for a lot of people listening to this who aren't really into this world, they're like, okay, trusted third parties work for me. So why do I need to go to this new system that you guys keep talking about? Uh, I'm just curious if anything like that is. Well, ever I, I, for I'll you. bring I'll bring up a couple examples. Uh, I mean, you know that. So earlier this year, when Trump got kicked off of all the social networks, I mean that was a big trusted third party moment, right? It was like. Uh, okay, whether or not you agree or disagree with this politics, what happened on January 6th is like, you just had an unelected internet company decide who the leader of the free world is. Because if you get if you get knocked off of all the social networks and you can't be searched for, you you functionally don't exist in 2021, right? I mean, that's what happened. They took him off. They, they basically stripped away his power more than the court system could or uh, a legislation could. They did it overnight. So... That becomes a question of should something that is unelected and has almost zero oversight in reality uh, be have that much power? I mean, that is a trusted third party kind of conundrum, right? And then look on, uh, by this time, it would have been 10 days ago, but uh, Facebook out for six hours, right? The amount, I mean, we made jokes about Facebook being out for six hours and the memes were freaking hilarious, but there are 2.5 billion WhatsApp users. And outside of North America, WhatsApp is just critical infrastructure, right? And Facebook going down took out WhatsApp. So now that the whole question came up is like, so there are seven countries in the world right now where over 90% of the population is on WhatsApp. It's insane. It's like Nigeria, South Africa, Malaysia, uh, and a couple of other developing countries. So WhatsApp and Facebook being down for us, literally, we were joking about it all day. I was memeing all day, but it was people's livelihood in other parts of the world, right? And I think and, a lot of people don't realize in like most of South America and parts of the Middle East and many different uh, parts of the world, that's how you do business too. That's it's everything, not just, yeah. It's not just, oh, I couldn't message my, my boyfriend, girlfriend, father, son or whatever. It was like, oh, the business went down because they weren't taking orders via yeah. WhatsApp. Is literally, I mean, India has 400 million WhatsApp users. That's more than America's entire population. Uh, and Mental. the large majority of them run their businesses on WhatsApp, right? Like to Bilal's point, there are 15 million WhatsApp business users. And this is like their beta business platform. The 15 million in India, think about that. The small businesses, right? Offline. So the, the trusted third party question goes around. I think we can kind of tease out the two elements now that we've touched on is like one is a censorship question, right? And then within the censorship question, uh, a lot of philosophical things started happening around Trump's banning is like, which layer, and we've touched it in the past, which layer do you start banning people on, right? Like, for example, AWS took off Parler, which was the right wing conservative version of Twitter. They knocked them off the internet. And then people were like, okay, that's kind of scary. Because AWS not letting Parler on effectively canceled them from existing, right? So the kind of philosophy that uh, Ben Thompson, a tech writer, super strategic, he kind of laid out was like, at which point of the internet infrastructure do you assign uh, people the right to kind of deplatform people? I think he said that 
I might be wrong here, but his structure is basically saying at the very bottom, AWS, they probably shouldn't have, uh, oh no, they can kind of deplatform people, but at the very top, in uh, when you go up to like a community or a social network like Facebook, it's, it's going to have to be a lot more difficult around what you allow. I might be having the order wrong, but the whole point is that different parts of the stack should have different responsibilities around what they're allowed to do. So I think that's a big trusted third party issue. And um and, and then obviously we bought the infrastructure question. And the way I would circle it with decentralization is Twitter. So Jack Dorsey is rolling out something called Blue Sky, which is his attempt at creating a decentralized Twitter. He wants to be a protocol which other social networks can be built on. He doesn't want this responsibility of censorship anymore. I mean, and, and we know how much Jack Dorsey loves crypto, right? But I mean, we've talked about it in the past. The problem with letting kind of communities do their own thing is like, man, if you don't have moderation it just everything degenerates into just fucking disaster I mean, right? we have twitter right now with moderation and yeah. it's still a shit show so like yeah it's a big it's a huge so that's the question right it's like you decentralize to be more quote-unquote resilient against maybe an outage that happened at facebook or this deplatforming risk but then you allow this insane thing where i mean facebook spends five billion a year in moderation if you're not doing that i mean this sounds terrible but you're going to see a lot of I mean, beheadings right like terrible things happening to children like these facebook spends five billion dollars a year to try to keep this out of our fate and the people doing that have an awful existence so like these are not easy questions but i think this touches on the third trusted third parties question and why this should exist versus why not yeah completely uh, nailed it jack anything else on that before i mean there's one other screenshot i was going to share um while you're if you've got something to add go for it um, I was just going to share this in the thread. This kind of stuck with me. This was really cool. So for people who are only listening on the podcast and you can't see, um, it's basically an example of where things are going in his opinion, right? And I don't know where this is taken from if he made this himself. Um, but he said, we are here in 2020. Yes, I think it's their fund. So this is like a slide oh. deck from their fund, yeah. Oh, amazing. Oh. All right, cool. That makes sense. Yeah, so it's like collectibles and art, which is all the JPEGs we're talking about now. But there's also gaming, brands, culture, metaverse, off-chain assets, off-chain governance. This is, the, so to be for the listeners, this is an NFT roadmap. This is uh, exactly. This is uh, how they're kind of laying out what NFTs can be. And uh, it goes from the left here, collectibles, which Bilal touched on. And then on the farthest, like once they reach, quote unquote, hypothetically, as far as it goes, it's off-chain governance. So now decentralized governance, right? Which actually Patrick Stanley from CityCoin, I mean, that's what that whole thing was kind of getting to, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think it's like tra transparent markets is a is an interesting frame to look at things through as well, where if you add like liquidity, global access and transparency to any market, you immediately like price discovery is faster, stuff moves hands faster, like money flows in the direction of the thing that is, um, I mean, in the short term, you could argue the thing that's generating the most capital, but over the long term, it's like making it easier to move money around is, should be, um, should serve the purpose of getting things done that people want done and i think the idea of trusted third parties in general is like you can right now you can make a decision and then leave it up to someone else the transparency stops at a certain point versus like you being 
involved in you know having a say in i think governance like at a local level is kind of an interesting example for this too it's like if you were um if you were invested in a place you live because you pay taxes and then people can vote on how their tax dollars are used and even if you can't vote on them you can see where they went right you can if this is a if this is on chain or if this is a immutable ledger it's like this is the cost that we you know the the amount of money we spent operating this department this is how much we spent funding like cleaning the streets this is how much we spent funding parks this is how much we put into education um that doesn't exist right now and because like the lowest stakes markets like people trade in friggin pogs and pictures of animals and stuff like that like that dynamic has been applied to like basically the easiest thing that could possibly create it, be created which is this thing with like you know apart from people that are losing money gambling it's pretty low stakes stuff right it's not like you're running a city or a hospital or something but the efficient market that you're laying on top of this thing does like it makes all of these transactions more f- efficient i think over the long term it like puts capital in the right places how do we circle all that back just on that roadmap that they showed right we want to collect to arse all the way to off-chain governments jack how can you tie back memes into that which is what you started with yeah so i think that's like the layer on top of all of this that is you know you could you could attach a set of memes or a meme to every subsection of that. So Miami coin last week, the Miami meme is like, is bigger than Francis Suarez at this point, right? The Miami meme is like, Florida is, is one discussion, but Miami specifically is like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Tech, like tech friendly. (laughs) We're going to like, we're going to do everything we can to like be hospitable to companies that are, um, you know, financial technology or blockchain or whatever else and then that meme kind of replicates you saw it with, was it keith raboy that was the first like big vc yeah, to big buy VC. a place in miami and then it's peter teal's getting a place in miami and then you know everybody else moving to me every founder that moves there gets tweeted out and this is not like one line or one image or one like there's not one thing that represents that meme but that meme could be like oh maybe miami is the next like financial technology capital city of the world. Right. Well, Silicon and, Valley is a meme, right? Silicon Valley. The, right. All exactly. That is Perfect analogy. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so that's like this is the yeah. What, I don't even know if anybody's coined a good version of that yet, but that's probably what it will get reduced to, right? It will probably get packaged in two words, three words. This thing that's like okay, that stands for, and the the compression happens over time. Like all of this meaning gets. Because now you say America, Trump, Biden, there's like encyclopedias worth of emotion and reactions that are attached to those words in the same way that like, if you said Miami on Twitter three years ago, people were like, oh yeah, it's a good night out in Miami. Yeah. Right? It, oh but my God, dude, you're right. Yeah. In certain circles, it means something completely different now. So, and because we're on the computer eight, nine hours a day. And when you explained what a meme is strong, it's like, you're you think that you have like a different opinion than everyone else but you're part of this hive mind whether you like it or not if you're participating in these systems and your mind is you're being exposed to this idea over over again maybe you have a different reaction to it but it 
it grows or shrinks based on people's willingness to spread it and with what spin they put on it. So the like, there's like a meme war on Twitter now, which is like pro NFT, um, anti NFT, right? They're, they're like duking it out. And I think we all have like our own echo chambers where if you logged into someone else's Twitter account and looked at the feed, it'd be like NFTs, you know, the planet's about to fall out of orbit because of NFTs versus like the like we're about to be usher in a new utopia and like you know we're all going to live to 250 years old and everything's going to be great i uh actually was just listening jack when you're talking uh and you mentioned about let's go back to the nietzsche quotes like people don't have ideas ideas have people i actually thought up of a very salient example from my own like just that just how uh, this example from my own experiences just speaks to how simple it is for people like, listen, I'm quote unquote well-read. And I think that I'm quote unquote logical. Right. But like, I'll give you that. I went on CNBC. So they go, the segment that I was asked to do was should Apple uh, acquire a film studio? This is after Amazon acquired MGM. So they're like, Hey, Trung, would you come on CNBC and opine on this? I have zero opinion. I have no fucking idea, but they've asked me to go on. So now I have to form an opinion. I literally Google, should Apple buy a film studio? <laughs> the first article that comes up is like Lionsgate. And so now I think I've come up with this idea that Apple should buy as Lionsgate. And now if you were to tell me that that's a dumb idea, I will fight you to the death over that idea. And my 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 uh, opinion of it was literally built over like a 10 minute, you know what I mean? Google search session. It was a 10 minute Google search. And I was forced to make that opinion because yeah. of CNBC. And, then, and you know, like I hold myself some up. It's like, oh, Trung, I'm a pretty rigorous guy. I like doing research. We're like, if and if I go down the street right now, I, is that I what you say to yourself? Sorry, <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah, I'm like, a really rigorous guy. Yeah, yeah like no, you know what I mean like, <laughs> I mean like, you know, obviously in my head, I believe I'm much more rigorous and do more due diligence than I do. But like, I know there's going to be some point in the future when somebody's going to bring up the topic of Apple should buy Lionsgate. I'll be like, yeah, I totally agree with you. But my opinion of that was formed from like the dumbest rationale. But the whole point of why I'm bringing this up is that like this idea that people think they have their own ideas is a joke, right? And I understand this intuitively. I know that my ideas are from other people and I'm just collecting ideas and somehow they're, they're mine and they're influencing how I think and view the world. It's, it's kind of effed up when you think about it, right? Very, yeah, so very deep just philosophical to, hole to go down. For completely. <laughs> just to summarize from what I was hearing, um, because I think like we said in the beginning of this, a lot of people think of meme and they think of a humorous image or video, which is part of the definition. I'm, I've Googled it while we're on here. There's two definitions, basically. That's the one that we all think of or many people think of. But the original definition is an element of a culture or system of behavior that may be considered to be passed from one individual to another by non-genetic means, especially imitation. So with that definition, everything we've talked about, you know, there's the overarching idea, right? And I think, like I've said this to a friend of mine a few nights ago, and he was like, what are you talking about? Meme is just like, you know, the thing that I send my friend in a group chat. And and I get what they're saying, right? Because that is also a newer definition. Like, you know, uh, context is obviously important. And the, the 2021 version of what memes are to a lot of people is that. So by, uh, you could say that that is the definition as well. Uh, but the overarching definition includes something that is passed on by non-genetic means, which is an interesting take. Um, just to circle this back from the thread to what else we wanted to discuss, one of my favorite parts of um, his thread 
Uh, I'm assuming it's a he because I think he said he. Um, he said um, after NFTs flip and art, NFTs will start eating brands. And if you remember from the diagram, it's like the next one is brands. They'll start in culture. They will start creating decentralized alternatives to centralized orgs. Are the board apes a silly collectible or are they a decentralized competitor to Supreme? That's amazing. And, you know, NIA listeners will know we talked about this many episodes ago about decentralized Disney. But I do like this this take. It's quite an interesting example with Supreme, uh, you know, with limited supply uh, something cool, something that, yeah, you're wearing a board eight right now. That's amazing. So for people just listening, he's wearing, Jack is wearing a hoodie with a board ape on it, right? Um, so that I thought was quite interesting because we, you know, similar to, as a part of this conversation, we also want to talk about um, how NFTs are kind of eating brands and that maybe isn't a 10 year thing. This is happening right now. Right. So the toads, the cryptos that we've talked about on the show um, has something called a CCO license. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm, And Jack, you just created something yesterday. I think it was like a hat or something, right? With this IP. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think this is a whole nother topic that we could kind of jump into. Yeah, I think what's cool about basically the crypto this is not specific to every crypto project. We talked about on Bored Apes, like the apes you own, you have creative license to use. Like you can't go out and say, I'm Bored Ape Yacht Club, but you could use the visual that you own. And that thesis has been gradually like played with in, in various different ways. But the cryptos that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I think we said this on that podcast, went with creative commons license. So that means like anybody, you don't have to own this stuff. You can take it. And use it for profit. You can go and like make a film. You could go and sell uh, T-shirts, anything you want, right? And I think talk about long-term play. There is a significance to that decision when you think about there can only be you know six. What is it? Six thousand nine hundred sixty-nine original cryptos, and every single execution of that IP drives like value back to those original holders without requiring layers of approval brands to get a campaign out in the world will spend millions of dollars like go through dozens of layers of approval and you can like there are reasons to do that right you don't want a nike swoosh on like you know i don't know a pack of cigarettes let's say the weird thing is like if you give this stuff to like people who are involved in the culture like and trust the people that are invested in this to do the right thing with it. And basically, I think back the thesis that the things that people want will continue to multiply, then you're doing something entirely different. And if you zoom out, you're basically crowdsourcing your marketing efforts and your product efforts over the long term, over every like geography, but et cetera, et cetera. So to give a really tangible example, the designers of the Cryptodes project were involved in that nouns project that we referenced. And they have these really iconic glasses. So like blocky vector glasses called nouns glasses. And they're on these noun characters and they're also on the Cryptodes. I was like, oh, those are badass. And uh, I put the, just the glasses on a hat. I was like, those will look cool on a hat, right? Just the, I'll, maybe I can pull up a screen share here. Um, yeah, and 
because like I'm sort of plugged into the um, network of people because I've been talking about toads on Twitter. So there's a bunch of people there. We talk about on the podcast. There's Jack, people that are listening to guys, it. Guys, we have a running joke. J- Jack's not going to like this, but we call him Jack Kramer. He's a Jim Kramer of NFT. <laughs> except, he, except he never misses. Jim Kramer's missed a lot. Uh, I've missed. So, so check this out. So these are, oh, I need a, I need permission, blah. We need decentralized Zoom. Decentralized Zoom. Yeah, yeah. yeah free de- Jack. No, <laughs> I've let you down here. This, this is a problem with trusted third parties, man. Oh, wait, let me go. This is the problem with trusted third parties. Go on, try it. Try it now. Oh, uh, yeah, perfect. Uh, yeah, it's working. So I'll get you boys. I'll get these sent, but check these out. So you got these little glasses, just a cool little hat. And um, I, I messaged one of the guys that's involved in the project. I was like, you know, is this cool? I think these are badass. Like, is it cool if I put these out? Um, knowing that the answer was going to be yes, but just like to get the idea, like, or just to kind of test the thesis. It's like, oh, those are cool. Don't, I said, oh, can I send you one? He's like, no, nah, I don't have a mailing address. I'm remaining anonymous, but I'd love <laughs> to see him on other people's heads. I'm remaining so, oh, anonymous. Badass. That's brilliant. Bro. Yeah. <laughs> so I just did this. Uh, I just like, okay, I'll make them available for 69 minutes. You know, the ethos that, they're going to be limited run. You can only get them if you're here now. And uh, I think we sold 176 of them in an hour. Oh, my God. How much was one? 29 bucks. 176. Yeah, what, 5K? Like, so it's like 7,500 7, like 7, bucks. And obviously, you know, there's margins and shit in there. But the idea of... We talked about this before, like permissionlessness and like building a brand from scratch is is hard as hell. And that's what people have been doing for years and years, right? Like I want to start my own clothing brand. And in some cases, yeah, great. You should do that. Or I want to start my own animation studio or I want to um, be a graphic designer and win my own clients. This is like, and there's like an economic engine and it's silly right now, right? It's It's a bunch of cartoon toads but it is this network that you can plug into that already has product market fit, narrative market fit, whatever you want to call it. And you can add value to that network without permission, without fear of legal repercussion. Like you're not screen printing Nike swooshes and going down the market. Right. Um, so I like, it's a really simple example, but it just gets to this idea of a completely different incentive set and it starts a a totally different set of behaviors um and beyond this thing that i've done you can like people are making games like taking the characters putting them in games they're doing like there's the socks project below which we've been talking about some socks and i've got um (laughs) what is it the chodes 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 as well which look pretty cool they actually look really cool guys hold on a second i'm gonna so later in this episode, listeners and viewers, we, we interviewed employee number one at Aussie, which we're going to tag on to the end of this combo. And uh, Aussie Media, the beleaguered media company, uh, been around since 2013. But employee number one, Eugene Robinson, made a, an amazing insight, which we'll, you'll, you'll hear soon enough. He's talking about how when he realized that the whole thing was a house of cards was he was four or five years into it. And he was calling up people and being like, hey. Uh, you know, my name is Eugene Ramsey calling from Aussie Media. No one had any fucking idea what he was talking about. No idea what Aussie Media, media was. But I think this is like the flip of what yeah, Jack yeah, did, yeah. right? It's like Aussie Media, this totally centralized, raised 80 million, try to brand everything, try to be cool. And Eugene talks about it. Uh, 
later in this episode. But the whole point is that they tried to force this down people's throats and just nothing. Whereas to Jack's point, uh, CCL, Creative Commons License, doesn't matter. Anybody can do anything. Jack goes out, makes up these stupid glasses, which is kind of cool hat, actually. And like, it just made nouns more valuable, right? <laughs> and just like didn't have to ask permission. All right. What I was just going to say is, yeah, the fact that, you know, back to that original thread we were talking about, like in this case, you can just, yeah, that's a physical product, but the chodes or the, uh, or the, the socks or whatever, those are like just, go to a website, click a button and you claim it because you've already, you already own this thing. Right. And they already know there's at least seven, you know, close to 7,000 people that want these because you're going to claim it for free so much so that now they're selling on secondary market for like a thousand dollars, just this one thing that is not the official thing. So, um, I think it's an interesting thing where you can just airdrop like something that you've created, obviously with permission or like following the license that's out there. And um, I guess the question is, though, over time, as it becomes bigger, how do you control for that? It's the reason why a really small designer down the road in Brooklyn is maybe okay with someone doing something like this, uh, potentially compared to a Nike, because Nike needs to control the brand or even more so like the high end luxury brands. They care even LVMH, more so than anyone. Yeah. Exactly. So it is interesting to think like, well, you know, Jack, you're a brand guy, right? Like, will this erode? the will it water down or erode the brand value and i think in the short term we're seeing it's not like it seems to be expanding and growing the the meme essentially but if this was five years down the road would this erode the the kind of value of that original brand yeah it's a that's a great question i think it's like the how aligned the project was like because it was born in that ethos that like if if lvmh or nike said tomorrow hey a cco season on lvmh and nike that's like basically that stock chart is taking a complete dive yeah. right it's just <laughs> completely in like implodes itself and i think they'll all try and do like maybe they'll do like pockets of experiments where they get people involved in that like wasn't virgil talking about doing um yeah, Metaverse. He's Metaverse, NFT, yeah. in a Metaverse, LV, yeah. LV, you know, all the Fortnites and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, there's definitely a level of control that brands like that want to have because they're already massive memes. They're, or people already have like right. this lofty association uh, of what yeah, this yeah, thing yeah. is. And Which then if you see something of else. Years, right? or, or Nike took decades and, uh, right, right, and right. hundreds of millions of dollars in marketing and advertising. Yeah, and it's like, a, this is like a maybe an argument for why the bottom up things will be stronger because they're they're like organically validated memes rather than these things you're trying to force into the market from the top down which are much harder to much harder to do um and like you're selecting for the types of people that identify with that ethos from day zero versus like trying to basically ride a new trend or like a new I don't know. Obviously, brands will execute well on Web3, but I can't imagine any brand just being like, hey, we're open sourcing everything. Go for it. Maybe like real risk takers will do that. But um, yeah, it's, 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 it's also like I think the it's so niche and so tight within like a very specific culture that everything that comes out of it kind of is produced by people that are all consumed with this stuff. It's not like 
You know, it's not like people that are uh, that occupy an entirely different world just like are being opportunistic and getting involved in this. Like you have to be so intimately, you have to understand it so intimately. Like there's probably only 50,000 people on the planet that are even like, that's maybe an underestimation. You know, a couple hundred thousand people on the planet. What is it? 250,000 open sea wallets. So like, even if you don't own it, there's still only a small subset of people that know it's possible to own this thing. And, um, those people are so absorbed in this culture that I think they um, like they produce things that are more in line than uh, someone like a Nike putting that call to arms out. It's like 0.0001% of people that consume or use their stuff even knows what the hell this is. So it's just a, a complete 180 in that sense as well. Do you know where I think it's going to go, boys? I think, you know, if you think of 2017, as the time where Bitcoin went on that crazy run, Ethereum went on that crazy run, and it brought a lot of people into the space, including me and, and Jack, I think, around the same time. Right? Even if we had all heard about it before and Trung wrote his NBA paper on it or whatever, like that was the time where people took notice because there was a sense of urgency to be like, everyone's making all this money. My barber's talking about it. What the hell am I doing not learning about this thing? And even, um, yeah, there's plenty of people. Like I think even Punk6529 even said, like they got involved with it early on because they're like, what is this thing? And then the second wave comes later where you're like, oh, now I'm here. Like, oh, you start learning about what decentralization is. And you're like, oh, what are these other things they're building on top of it? And, and then you're like, oh, DeFi, what the hell? We're taking out the banks completely, like don't even have to be there to, to give someone a loan. So that's to me, like the life cycle I've gone through and I think like NFTs of kind of having that moment right now where there was, there's been so much hype, which comes with the highs and lows, comes with the crazy press. Like my dad messaged me this morning because I told him about Yo, which toad am I buying? Which, which, yo, no, yo, Bilal, which toad am I buying? I said for him and my mom, we're on FaceTime and I was like, yeah, I bought this thing. Oh, it's worth man. X amount now. And they're like, what? They almost fell off their chair. And, uh, my, and then my dad sends me a, a thing this morning saying like, yeah, there's some scam that happened. Be careful. And I'm like, yeah, the, no. the evil yeah. ape. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. Yeah, dad, exactly. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Hold on, but, guys. Update. What's your, what's your toad return right now? Blah. Oh, me, mine. I mean, I bought mine for two and it's, I mean, it's up to 10, 15. It depends on the day you're looking at. So Jack, what about you, brother? Hold on. I mean, <laughs> uh, I got most of mine point one eight point two something. I got a nice little uh, McDonald's one too. Oh, Real rare. Sake. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, yeah. So, look, it's Yo, I mean, Jack sitting on some retirement. Jack Kramer. Now. Jack Kramer. Killing it. I mean, look. Uh, yeah. Go on. Go on, Jack. It's crazy, man. I think, um, like, it really struck a chord for that reason because of the the license thing and the first of its kind. Like, I think Board Apes had that like commercial use, which was a new, you know, a new mechanic and then this is like a slightly different tweak on the mechanic and there are other things other projects that aren't new in terms of the way they are the way the mechanics or the like setup of the projects is different and maybe the art and the community can carry that but i think honestly over the long term like anything collectible is like it had some historical significance or it did something first and that like cements it in some ways so while all of this stuff is like insanely speculative and if you have any bills to pay, like the, all the money that goes into this stuff should be just like 
consider it lit on fire, obviously. Um, but the, the ones that I think would have any shot at being long-term relevant are like, oh, NFTs completely changed the way humans conduct commerce. And these projects were all the first to introduce this mechanic to NFTs. But Bilal's out to, uh, when he's back in the UK next time, they're going to be out to brunch with his family. And his dad's going to be, the bill's going to come in. His dad's going to be, and Bilal's going to grab his dad's hand and be like, dad, <laughs> I, uh, I got this dad. Don't worry about right. it. <laughs> Do you accept tones? Do you, accept? Yeah. <laughs> you know what though? You know, here's a crazy idea. Like somebody could start a like toad backed mortgage security oh. or credit card. Right? Oh my God. Like hundred percent. So you have a toad yeah, card. Label. Yeah. Toad card. And then like some freaking toad coin, which is, you know, being staked and yields X for whatever economics that they put into this thing. And you're like, yeah, I will pay for brunch with my toad card and I'm using my toad as collateral and then I'll, you know, whatever I mean, this is, DeFi I mean, yield I'm getting, I'll is, pay off the balance. It's incredible. Like one thing I wanted to say on the toes just to wrap it up there is I've been chatting to a lot of people over the last week uh, because toads went up from, you know, two to 10 to 15. And by the time you listen to this, who knows, it might be way down, it might be way up, who knows, right? But um but like someone actually messaged me, someone who listened to the show, Henry, um, he messaged me this morning about something and he was like, man, the toes are going down. And I'm like, dude, it went up from two to 10 in, in a week, like <laughs> 10 to 15. So, I mean, we, we have to have a longer time horizon with these things. But the, the second thing I was going to say is because I'm like really new to this stuff. I've just, just something I've been looking out for is when you go in the discords, see what people are talking about. If they're creating projects and they're saying, hey, look at these socks that I made, look at these whatever I made. Like that is a very good sign in my opinion, in my amateur opinion. And when people are saying one toad, one toad, obviously it's a joke, but you know, that is another good sign. But when you go into some other discords, you just see people being like, hey, I want to sell this thing. And as soon as you just see everyone's only flipping of course like this flipping happening across the board i'm not against that but if it's just strictly that is a very different level of community whereas i'm not in the board ape one but i'm sure there's a lot more interesting discussions going on there so uh, that's just my amateur take uh from the two weeks i've been in the nft world <laughs> uh, it's up there with professional opinion with given how long the space has been around it's a good it's a good point Trung, how you? I just see Trung laughing the whole way. So like, what well, I mean, thinking? dude, we I mean, we chat in the Telegram. Uh, what I can't remember one of our our, our good uh, uh, community members. I don't know if you call it whatever whoever's in the chat. They replied to one of the uh, the things and just you know a lot of toad holders in the NIA Telegram. There's a lot of toad holders. <laughs> no, and uh, I mean it's just funny. Like I don't have a toad. A half the group's got a toad, and you guys are eating right now. And I'm just wanting to. I'm not Matt. What am I do? I just bought Bitcoin at 55k. I'm a sucker, right? Like, what, what do you want me to tell you? Like, I'm a I'm an idiot. Like, FN. I'm basically back to FN, missing all this NFT boat. But anyways, man, I love it, dude. I love. I, I love have to say the the FOMO I got from the uh, board ape is what got me ready to like get MetaMask ready, have some ETH kind of ready to put into this. Just. Just what I was like, oh, when it's ready, I need to know how it works. And honestly, the the 
the only way I learned it was on the podcast when you shared your screen and I was saying if it was like really mm. tactical and I was like, hey, can you go to the filter? Like what Amazing. does the, what does that price mean? Because I didn't understand that until now. Now I'm dry, an expert in open sea. Dry powder, bro. <laughs> oh um, man. So Anyway, amazing. congrats to all the toad holders. If we're if we're making it, we're making it. If not, we're going down in flames, man. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> all, right, all right, let's um let's wrap this up, boys, because I know we got one last um topic. Let's go quickly. SBF Sam Bankman Fried. Let's Freed. let's do it. Trunk, you've been doing some research into the youngest. Is he now the youngest billionaire in the world? He is. Uh, he's not the youngest billionaire. He is at twenty nine years youngest old. Youngest crypto Sam, Sam Bankman Fried, the head of FTX Trading which is a crypto exchange is uh, the youngest person other than Mark Zuckerberg to have $23 billion or like that ballpark, just mind blowing. Uh, well, our, our good, uh, you know, uh, Rick Burton, uh, early Stripe employee, Twitter, Twitter flamethrower. Uh, he, uh, somebody posted the, uh, cause SBF was on the cover of Forbes. Uh, Forbes made this whole thing. They did the new top 40 Sam Bankman fried founder, CEO of FTX uh, trading was on the cover uh, somebody basically told it, uh, posted that and uh, somebody wrote uh, to the effect of, you know, the richest person under 30. And then uh, Rick just went, da, 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 da. hold on. How old is, how old is John Collison? Uh, the uh, Patrick Collison's brother who co-founded Stripe. Oh, got it. Uh, got it. No, but John turned is 31. Uh, those guys are probably worth about 20 to 30 bill each. Stripe is trading in private markets right now, $240 billion. Insane. <laughs> you, know, you, you, want to, you want to know one day pop? That thing IPOs is going to be $304 billion company. It's insane. Um, but yeah, dude, so I'll just do Sam super quickly. A lot of this information is from uh, Jack's former collaborator, uh, uh, Mario Gabriel. Uh, Mario's The Generalist uh, a newsletter. It's amazing. Everybody should download it. The Generalist. He did a three-part series about I'm Sam. I was laughing at that too. Wait, Are you laughing that? at the way he does the generous with the hand? Or the- no, I was laughing at everybody should download it. Like oh. he's- <laughs> <laughs> everybody should download subscribe. the email. Subscribe yeah. to the generalist. Yeah. Fiat fan living in the 90s, right? Oh my God. This is why I don't own a toad. Everyone um, should print out the journalist at, at the generalist and have a read. Go to the no, go to the library, print it out, and then read it in the library and give it back to the librarian. But uh he, uh, he actually interviewed uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, so I'll, I'll talk about the Forbes article first, and then I'll talk about Mario's piece, which is more strategy. So Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, MIT student, uh, studied physics. His parents were, uh, uh, I believe his parents were both uh, law professors, uh, might have been at Stanford, and uh, he thought he was going to be an academic. But a couple episodes ago, when Jack was talking about his Afghanistan uh, uh, relief, uh, charity work with NFTs. I mentioned at the end of the episode about effective altruism, just the idea of there's this whole charity movement. And obviously Bilal knows a lot about it, having worked with Charity Water, is a lot of people have uh, uh, attached themselves to effective altruism, which is basically being the most quantitative data-driven way to spend money for charity. It's like you find the best way that a dollar can affect people's lives. And basically Sam Bangman Free, while he was in university, read about effective altruism. And he's like, okay, so I kind of know what my purpose in life is right now. It's like, I need to make as much money as humanly possible. And then I can direct those funds in the most quantitatively data-driven way to affect positively people's lives. So he thought initially he's going to be a physics professor, but then his first job out of school was to become a, a trader with Jane Street, which is a big financial institution. I can't remember what he's trading. I think he's trading currencies. 
And he put together some money, nothing crazy. And he, around 2017, 2018, Bilal, you mentioned it, the whole crypto run up. He saw these crazy things were happening in crypto. And the, the crazy thing about Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, everybody calls him SBF, is that he is not an ideologue at all. He doesn't even care about crypto. He says it in the Forbes piece. He's like, if I can make this much money selling orange juice futures, I would. He's like, <laughs> I just want to make as much money as Man. humanly possible. Like wow. what? Like what a legend. I love, goes, I love that you're just keeping it real though. Like yeah, he's being honest. He's like, listen, he's not I don't care. He's like, mess I, around. I'm not a Bitcoin maximist. Like I'm not Michael Saylor, right? Like he's the richest Bitcoin guy by far. There is a second right best. Now. Who's, who's richer than him for Bitcoin? No, I'm just saying his uh, position is there is a second best. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Very many, right? But I mean, Brian Armstrong's worth 10 bill. So he's twice as much as the CEO of Coinbase. Satoshi might be the only guy that's richer than him, right? And who fuck knows Satoshi is, unless it's Vladimir Putin, whatever. Uh, so Sam Bateman freed. <laughs> heard it here first. Yeah, heard it here first. 2018, 2017, the run-up. He was, he found a crazy hack is that he could buy, uh, it was either buy Bitcoin in the US and sell it in Japan for like a 30 to 40% markup. Is one of those ways. But he was finding this massive arbitrage and he was making, I think at one point, tens of millions of dollars a day, arbing, uh, arbing this oh crazy Bitcoin I love difference. that so much. Dude. What a legend. And uh, <laughs> so this that. is, a, he He had left Jane Street at the time. And he's like, I'm going to, and then he, when he went through the entire experience, what he realized is that none of these exchanges are set up for like professional traders. Sure, right? It's early. He's like, I'm going to make that exchange. And so the, the founder of Binance, CZ, uh, invested in him. Binance is the biggest, the world's biggest crypto exchange. And uh, I'll tell you the crazy thing about Binance. So the CZ invested 70 million in, uh, in FTX, which is only three years old. And uh, Sam Bankman-Fried rebought that stake from CZ for $2.3 billion. So he rebought his FTX stake after three years. So this Binance dude made a like, 30 times return on $70 million. Um, but anyways, back to it, FTX based in Hong Kong, so it could go around all the rules. A lot of it wasn't really, uh, a lot of it was actually built around derivatives trading, like trading off of the movement of crypto uh, because there's a lot more volume in that. And he took, a, a, I think, 0.03% of each trade. But like TLDR is that the, the, his company, FTX, is worth like 25, 30 bill now. And they built it on Solana, I think, right? Because this was one of the big wins for Solana. I don't know the full, if that's an accurate statement, but that was one of the big wins for I know they are Solana. very close. Yeah, I don't know the full details of that. But uh, he also has a trading arm called Alameda. Uh, and uh, yeah. a lot of concern around FTX is that Alameda was kind of benefiting from the fact that he owned this exchange and he had this big investing fund. But anyways, uh, all of this to wrap up is that they have one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world. And a lot of the listeners have probably seen though FTX has gone absolutely batshit crazy with US marketing. Uh, they raised $900 million over the summer uh, at an $18 billion valuation. $900 million. And they've already put $500 million in that into naming rights. They named the Miami Heat Stadium. Uh, they bought the uh, a popular esports team. And there's, they have a partnership with Tom Brady, uh, Steph Curry. And the reason why he's doing all this is because he's aggressively going after retail now, retail traders and retail investors. And uh, the derivatives business is interesting because it is much more, more professionalized. But what's kind of happening, and, and this is where Mario Gabriel comes in, download slash subscribe to the generalist is Mario was talking about uh, 
they have this huge war chest now. And Marty was like, man, you have that money. And, and the main concern for SBF is customer acquisition. He wants retail. So that's why he's getting into sports. It's like this derivatives business, which is a lot of betting. They might go into sports betting, right? So they, they're just like, they started in this niche of crypto. But again, SBF doesn't care about crypto. He cares about making as much money as humanly possible. So uh, Mario said there's some pretty crazy things they could do. Like he said, Mario said they should buy Reddit. Uh, if you want to acquire customers, right? You want to acquire, uh, if you care about, yeah, go ahead, Jack. I was just going to say, just while you're still on that there, I think they're launching an NFT platform as well. Yeah. Like look at the volume OpenSea is doing right now. If they can take a slice of that. Or exactly. Buy OpenSea, FTX OpenSea. 100%, right? They're not completely agnostic. They like use crypto as the wedge. And uh, and so the the Forbes article kind of touches like this is his, uh, his whole point is that like he wants to do this, but he's actually given away very little. I think he's given away the equivalent of 0.01% of his wealth. Still material, right? For how rich he is. But uh, they, they asked him about that in the article. He's like, no, no, it's because... I plan to give away everything. I'm just not doing it now because it's going to get much bigger, right? He's very illiquid. Like a lot of people that are rich, I mean, we've talked about it, right? You can borrow against your wealth if you own all these things. So he is extremely illiquid. So all his wealth is tied up in these companies. But pretty similar to Elon, actually. Uh, Elon's all tied up in Tesla and uh, SpaceX. But the whole point being, this guy is making so much money. He doesn't care how he's doing it. He's found that crypto is a way. But if orange juice futures are the way to do it, he might just do that. And uh, the youngest amazing. guy, yeah, it's amazing. It's a, it's extraordinary to execute at that level and be like, not like you know the Brian Armstrong, where it's like, this is my philosophy about yeah. how the world should be in a hundred <laughs> years. This guy's just like, oh, Give this me is the, the market where I can Dude, just get. You want to talk about giga brain? Yeah, yeah, like you, you want to talk about like, think about how smart this guy is, right? And like this, this is one of the investors is like, I've never seen anybody move this fast. Like the, this guy just. He lives in the Bahamas now, uh, so he's running the operation in Hong Kong. But now, obviously, there's a lot of like regulation, tax benefits from living in Bahamas. But yeah, dude, this is all the guy cares about. And I, in the next year, everybody's going to FTX. They're going to spend so much money just blanketing America to try to win the retail uh, thing. And not to say that they will. I mean, they go up against Square, Coinbase. Everybody's trying to break into these things. But man, uh, I find it hard to bet against this dude based on what he's accomplished. What are the platforms that have the most market share? Like. Is Robinhood even materially up there? So he, so he would have to. He's trying to tie. He's playing, trying to play in every space. So he's gonna, he's going up against uh, wallets and payments, against the squares and Venmos. He wants to have stock trading. Uh, they haven't done material yet, but he's talked about. It. He's like, listen, whatever we can do, we have the wedge. We want in. He wants to be one of these supermarkets, right? Mm. He wants to be like Square is. How Square has crypto trading, stock trading, uh, has the wallets. Has uh, he wants to be like that. You know, it's funny. I wonder, uh, maybe this won't make a difference, but it's all of these consumer platforms have like the cute Silicon Valley brand and name and FTX is like, I don't know if there's some adoption hesitancy for like retail yeah. users to like get on a acronym platform. You know, it feels like Bloomberg terminally. No, hundred percent. Well, and he has to, and his background, I mean, the, he talks about in Argos, like his background is that he was much more focused at the professionals. So, I mean, it's no guarantee that he'll be able to bridge it, but I just, man, the orange juice futures quote just put me on the floor, that's, man. That's that summarizes it. Uh, this guy Amazing. just does not, I don't care how, I just want to be rich. And it's for very explicitly the purpose of giving it all away. Did he say anything about where he's giving it away or what? Like No, just like he just uh, mentioned, uh, he said specifically effective altruism. It's just, so it's like by the time, whatever, let's say five, 10 years, 
he'll have $100 billion. What's the most pressing thing in that time? Is it going to be climate change? Like, what is it going to be, right? He's just going to direct as many resources. He's going to do the Bill Gates thing, right? He's just like, he's doing the Bill Gates. Although Bill Gates is not exactly effective altruism, but I, I imagine he's in that mold. Dustin Moskovitz is the other one that does this, right? From Asana, the Facebook co-founder, worth about $20 billion. He's a he's a effective altruist. So like the listeners, the last thing I'll add is like, you can Google Dustin Moskovitz, like Excel spreadsheet. And he like shows you, how he thinks about charity, like him and his wife, Carrie Tuna are like very into this whole effective altruism EA movement. And they just want, give me numbers, man. man. Bilal, you probably know about Dustin Moskovitz as a charity guy. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit, but no, I just think it's, it's cool. I think it's a cool idea. I do think one thing to wrap it up is, uh, I think by the time you've got 20, 30 billion, you've got enough, you've got more than enough money to, like give right like it's yeah. not going to make that much of a difference necessarily of like spending another 30 years accumulating wealth but like everyone can make their own choice i think it's less about the money it's more about the focus like the time and energy right. so like with bill gates like he left and then he went and created the the foundation and then i like actually was working on it versus like oh here's a bunch of money to someone else i think at that level that's what they're thinking of which is which is fair enough yeah i agree yeah, and- he's 29 years old yeah and the other side of the equation i think this like on a small scale people think about this it's like i think didn't buffett like get a lot of heat for this it's like i'm gonna give all my money away but i'm gonna wait you know 50 years to do it it's like well yeah you can you know how much change could you affect right now and there's like the weighing off the like compounding of x amount versus like giving a consistent amount now and you talked about that below right like it, charity water one of the narratives was like get the you know like the invest in doing it now because you make it a part of your lifestyle yeah so it's an interesting different um and i think contrast. that's the thing these guys probably are i'm sure they are giving stuff right like uh, and i'm sure they're involved with some stuff but i think the full focus let's go for it like that's their choice it's like i completely respect that but yeah i do agree like once you understand like oh i don't have to give all my wealth away right now i can still give a percentage away um it's just like you get to enjoy it throughout your life it's like rather than it's the same logic to don't just work forever just to one day retire and like one day i'm gonna go on a vacation or i'm gonna travel or do whatever jump out of a plane like you can do all those things along the way that's just my opinion right now but i also don't have 29 billion dollars so ask me ask me uh ask me when i get there so fair enough all right boys should we wrap up anything else strong on the ftx stuff that was great man thanks for sharing that that was quite interesting all right uh, so guys the last thing we're gonna add we uh mentioned earlier in this episode we interviewed eugene robinson employee number one at aussie media uh so from last episode the whole thing is just a total roller coaster and it might have the details might have changed by the time you hear this because it's gonna be a week later but uh we mentioned Aussie media shut down, but then the uh, Carlos Watson, the CEO has gone on a press tour saying that, no, we're still back and we're going to keep doing it. But in the time that, that he's going on this press tour, it's come out that they took a PPP loan from a pandemic from the government and no one knows where that money went. And then no, none of the employees actually have agreed to come back. So we just have no idea where it's at, but we got uh, Aussie media employee number one, Eugene Robinson, and he's just going to break down some not necessarily timely. He's going to talk about just his experience there. He was hilarious too. Great energy, man. So I think oh you guys God. will enjoy it. Let us know what you think of it. Um, make sure you are subscribed across all the platforms and join the Telegram group. 
And uh, if you like this, let us know. You can let us know in the comments below. Uh, that's just the easiest way to, to help us out. Just click the like button, smash it, uh, write a comment, and uh, we will speak to you guys next week. And have a good one. All right, welcome. We've got a special guest here today, uh, Eugene Robinson. Thanks for joining the show, man. We're excited to have you on, man. I know we've got lots to talk about, so let's get straight into it. Um, you were the first employee at OZ, is that correct? Ozzy, I was uh, employee number one, according to Louise Rogers, who was a former chairman, former chairman of chairwoman of the board. I wasn't sure. I thought I was number two, but it turns out I'm, I was number one. <laughs> well, well right. which one? Which one do you like going with? Well, I, number one has got a certain amount of distinction, right? <laughs> <laughs> Always pit number one, man. Um. So the the reason we brought you on today is because the last episode, people already noticed if they've heard it from last week, but we did a little bit of a breakdown of the Aussie story uh, and we know there's like lots of moving parts. So even today as we're recording, there's been a bunch of stuff that just dropped. So we're going to touch on a few of those things, um, but obviously a heads up to the listener that this is an evolving story, right? So like by the time you listen to this, maybe there'll be some things that have changed again. Um, but more than that, we want to get your perspective on, you know, what it was like there, the real kind of like firsthand experience. Um, I know you had this great Substack uh, post that you, you put out, and I think you just said it was something was published in New York Times like 20 minutes ago, right? 20 minutes ago, I think the piece was what it was like to work at Ozzy, <laughs> which was not my original title. My original title was uh, uh, the lingering stink of hope and promise. <laughs> oh man, yo, <laughs> that would get way more clicks, yo. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, how did they change the title to that? That was yeah, I you know what the, the old gray lady does what it does, I guess. So well, actually, Eugene, could you just tell us actually what you're kind of up to now? And uh, I'd love to get your background, even just outside of Aussie in general, before the lead up to that article, and love to hear more about that article, if possible. Well, you know, I mean, I had had an interesting path, right? I mean, uh, I'm originally a New Yorker, came out to California to go to Stanford, um, but I've done journalism since, I think I probably published my first piece in 1976. Holy smokes. It was on music or something. And then I think I wrote my first query letter when I was nine to Esquire. So it's, it's pretty much all I've ever really wanted to do. Okay. Uh, but after I got to California, you know, I started doing music. Uh, you know, I had a, a hardcore hardcore band called Whipping Boy, and uh, I was disinclined to 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 leave and come go back to New York, which would have made sense if you were a serious journalist. Um, but I I had to make do with West Coast publishing, and so I have a kind of a weird career of both doing real world publishing, like for Ziff Davis or business, you know, B two B publication journals like eq magazine i worked for larry flint for a bunch for oh, uh, he, yo hustle yeah, he put up <laughs> code he does straight he did straight publications too code magazine was a men's magazine that was a challenger to, to gq i've written for gq um but i've also worked inside at apple with you know you know steve jobs interestingly enough or intel with andy grove and continue wow. to do continue to do music the whole time i grew up as a kind of like a competitive bodybuilder and then moved from that to got obsessed with watch the first UFC, got obsessed with mixed martial arts. And then for the last, I don't know, God knows, 15 years, been taking Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, so all of these factor in actually in a weird way to the story. But um, I got to Ozzy because my former boss at Q Magazine uh, was this woman, Louise Rogers, who was on the uh, on the on the board. 
Um, and she was the first one to meet Carlos and pull me into the creation of West Coast digital media the way it should be done, which was a general idea. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the hope and promise I spoke of in the killed title for the New York Times piece is, you know, that's a lot of us who, who were in serious people in media who came to it to do media, came to it with the sense of hope and promise. And of course, that's not what it ended up smelling like at all. So, I, uh, so question I had actually around that, I love your insight on it. It's probably not, uh, a little bit more separate than Aussie is like with all these other ones that came up around the same time, like the vices, the BuzzFeed, and uh, you see the success of Axios political. How do you kind of see these other players in the ecosystem? And if you could have redone it and it worked out better, I guess, would you, which one of those routes were more attractive, if at all, if any of them? Well, I, you know, I, 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 I've freelanced for Vice on and off for 10 years. I mean, um, maybe lastly and most significantly for their, their vertical, the Fightland vertical. Um, but I, I think my first piece was for the, that ended up in the Vice Guide to Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll was a piece actually on fighting which they've never paid me for, incidentally, and it would be nice to, to get finally. <laughs> so, you know, I keep bugging Shane Smith on Instagram about where's, you know, quack, quack, when will I get my money back? But I, you know, <laughs> I got to, I guess I got to bring somehow the physical threat or I, what, what am I going to need to get them taking me seriously? So, um, but I, you know, look, the media is not going through anything that anybody who's been involved in music hasn't already gone through, you right. know? On the one hand, you know, through the music I do, I've got fans now in Madagascar because my music is easily and readily available on the internet. On the other hand, there are not enough people in Madagascar to put together a tour to Madagascar. So it's nice that more people are getting to listen to the music, but it doesn't do much for your bottom line, you know? And this is, and this, and that fact alone creates this kind of um, positioning. And that's why I opened the Substack piece with the, uh, with the guy in Tel Aviv, the three card Monty deal, where all kinds of strange players can get involved. And they're like, yeah, we expect you to make money. So we'll give you money until you make money. Call it a loan, call it an investment, call it $83 million of something that, you know, easily anybody in publishing would know. Yeah, I could have done that for you. For, you know, how many, how many publishers does it, does it take to blow through $83 million? All of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, but they could have all done it for half the price. So, um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm a, originally at base root, a magazine guy. That's always okay. what attract all I ever wanted to do. Um, and insofar as any of those publications you mentioned are more or less like magazines, they've get, they've gotten my attention. And I have to say, I like comedy. I was always a big fan of national lampoon. So I think Buzzfeed would have been the likeliest, but you know, everybody gets seduced away in the end by this news uh, you know, frankly, like I, I mentioned again in the Substack piece, or no, I mentioned it in the New York Times piece that, you know, Haitian poverty crusaders, you know, South American politicos, you know, my kids like that kind of stuff. But generally, I'm, I'm, for me personally, I'm up for an easy read. I, I'll read crime. That's the heaviest thing that I'll read is crime and maybe politics every now and then. But I'm not all over the news thing. So. Fair enough. And uh, I know the, the Aussie approach was kind of to do these more undercovered stories. And uh, it kind of pivoted multiple times, as you well know, through the kind of the years and when it looked like something wasn't working, when it did work. A a bit more of a pointed question was more recently, over the past 12 to 15 months, it looked like it went all in on on Carlos Watson on YouTube, right? What, I mean, I would just love to get, whatever you want to divulge about that kind of specific pivot, which is what I've kind of latched onto the most as like, that to me was like the, 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 the red flag in the sense of like, when you 
put everything around the founder CEO and it's a media company that's supposed to be covering all these other uh, elements, that kind of looks suspicious to me. Uh, man, let me let me tell you, you know, I'm um, at a certain point where we're having a discussion with Samir, uh, who the Samir, the COO, who's been, I guess, fired, but who also was the one who was supposedly uh, uh, using the digital voice changer on the call with Goldman Sachs. Uh, one of the things he said as he was terminating me for refusing to pull down my sub stack was that he said, uh, you know, was, you know, your job, and I, and I go, well, let, let's stop there for a second. Let's talk about my job as it stands presently. This conversation was in June uh, 2021. So let's, let's talk for, very specifically about my job at Aussie, which constitutes doing newsletters, you know, 15, 15 to 20 item newsletters, of which 90% point to outside sources and involve no more than 50 words a piece. None of that is new or next. And editing transcripts for the Carlos Watson show. And it, I said, I, I am in living in a living hell, is how I described him. And he paused and goes, well, that's a discussion for another time. And that's like, you know, it's one thing to watch an occasional show. It's another thing to edit transcript after transcript that was supposed to provide the editorial narrative for a piece that would be another inroad in for an interested viewer, ultimately an interested viewer into the Carlos Watson show. But, you know, you're talking about a landscape that now includes cats like Eric Andre, Jimmy Kimmel, Trevor Noah. I don't even like Fallon much, but Fallon, Bill Maher. Um, I mean, you know, the, 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 the fat guy in the car with the singing, you know. <laughs> oh, Cordon, James Corden. James Corden, yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> James Corden. This is a very challenging landscape, you, you, you know, so you, you're going to step up to that table and what's the brand differentiator? And I'm reading through these transcripts and asking the same questions again and again and again and again. And that's why I quoted the Herzog response, because it was like the perfect one. He's like, yeah, we got to hang out. We're in L.A. sometimes, man. It's like, I don't know if you've ever seen a Werner Herzog movie, but this is not the cat that's hanging out, right? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. He's a very, he's he's a different cat entirely, right? He's different like cat. old. Yeah, I speak a little, I speak a little German, spend a bunch of, I, I actually had a TV show in Germany called the Eugene Robinson Show for a bit and on Viva TV. So I got, and Herzog just stops and it was like, and I'm reading the transcript. I have never watched a show. He, he's like, yeah, in 400 years. Yeah. <laughs> and then, he repeats it again. He's like, no, we should hang out. And then we're in our house. Yeah, 400 years we could hang out, which was really <laughs> the most perfect and most German thing he could have actually ever said. Right, right. So that, this, this was my work day. And so everything suborned to a, a TV show that was unproven. I mean, I've said before, and I've said it to him, Carl, him in this instance being Carlos Watson, um, and I've been very public about this, you can never convince anybody that you're sexy by telling them that you're sexy. That's not how it works. That's not how funny works. None of this stuff. So, you know, hip, cool, the voice of a generation. You just, you, just, you just can't make that stuff up. You can't, you know, you can't show up one day and your friends go, you know, you know, hey, Jimmy. And you go, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not Jimmy. I'm He-Man. What the He-Man? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Well, that's my new nickname. Who gave you that nickname? <laughs> well, I gave it to myself. <laughs> you know, you can't. And that's fundamentally what happened, you know? 
So. Wait, Yuji. So I, I only have two more that I'll, I'll pass the baton to these guys. It, my, this question is, is there any world where if Ben Smith didn't publish the piece, and let's just say they didn't even try to commit allegedly securities fraud, is there any world where uh, pumping all the money into pushing the YouTube show and then convincing maybe a Hulu, Amazon, or A&E ultimately to buy the show would give more money? And like, is there a world where if that had just keep spinning, it could have gone and it could have no. actually worked out? No? no. Oh, because, because the act of viewing, and more so when you talk about digital media, the act of viewing is super private, and I'm not beholden to anybody. Right. I'm not beholden to anybody about the, my viewing choices, which is why porn has succeeded so well on the internet. You, know, you just don't have to answer to anybody about what you're going to watch. I don't have, it's not like when there were three channels that you had to watch one of them, or, you know, BBC One and BBC Two in England. So the fact that that I would choose on any given day, that I would choose to give up portions of my day, you know, to con- I mean, the idea was, I guess, to pick A-list because A-list has a built-in audience and that audience would pour it over. But this is the same problem I had with Aussie Fest. You know, you might show up because you like Common, who, who, who played one of the Aussie Fest, but just because you like Common doesn't mean you give a crap about reading Aussie.com, which is painful right. for real folks you know it's like this is not our audience this is an audience but it's not our audience well who's our audience we don't know never saw those figures so never never if if you were to if somebody would be like you know a crude way to put a gun to your head like you had to say who was the archetypal aussie reader who would you say that is well we know we had a guy come in it was great we had a guy come in uh, and that we would have these multiple retreats where you'd have to give up your whole weekend to sit in some business center and and you know essentially you know have I mean some of it was pretty u- some of it was pretty useful like kind of brainstorming stuff to come up in the next quarter but then some of it was a lot of you know glad handing back slapping self congratulation and and the reality of it is he they, he they, somebody said oh. Uh, you know, James, John, whatever the guy's name was, he's now here to, you know, invest, to drill down on our, our, our readership. And maybe you could give us a little bit. And the guy said, yeah, well, least ways from what I figured out, you know, based on the numbers I crunch and doing audience surveys. And so, you know, 10,000 person audience survey is that the average Aussie reader is a, a 70 year old white woman. Not again, not like that demographic so, can wait, make money. Wait, 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 wait. So, so, so we break for lunch and dude is gone after lunch, like gone. <laughs> Seen him again. Never heard from him again. You know, I want to call witness protection program. I don't know what happened to him, but that was the end of him. We never saw him again after that. So, oh my goodness. Uh, all right, man. The total last one for me and you guys take it from here is, uh, so Carlos is going on this kind of crazy media tour to trying to salvage whatever. I don't know if there's anything left to salvage. Uh, is this consistent with what you know of him as a person? And is it just like, this guy's just going to go down with the ship? Is this, what, is this what's happening? Well, I was pretty dispassionate about it until I got a call from the New York Times saying, we've got a character issue here. And I go, character issue? What are you talking about? And they said, uh, Carlos, is. Uh, we shared your quotes with him, and uh, he's made a counterclaim that you've got a criminal record with a past history as a drug user. Could you, could you answer? Could you address those? Could you answer? <laughs> and I go, you know, I most certainly can because he got that information from articles that he assigned me to write. So point by point, when I was 19, I was arrested for telling a cop 
uh, at a traffic stop that my name, when he asked me for my name, I said, Abraham Lincoln. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I got uh, I in trouble for that and yeah. uh, probation for 18 months for lying to a cop, which I didn't even know that it was against the law, but again, now you live and you learn. And then of course I've been, I did a whole Aussie confidential, my podcast for Aussie on, on my, you know, having been a bodybuilder, eventually steroids come to play like they did for Arnold Schwarzenegger and The Rock and, you know, half of the athletes. Ronnie Coleman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so none of this should have been a surprise, but the fact that he went there and then somebody else contacted me from a pretty big publication in L.A. and said, you know what he's saying about you now? I go, what's that? He said, he's saying that you're just an MMA fighter who he, he pulled into publishing. I go, really? What about all those awards I got, you know, from my publications in the past? I guess that those weren't fighting awards, but, you know, so I think there's a lot of flailing. I think there's a desperation play. I think there's a large panic. And I think he's going back to what he knows, you know, and it almost maybe would have worked. He with Bill Cosby, with O.J. Simpson, with Clarence Thomas is one of these cats that suddenly becomes black. (laughs) Oh. And he's going on Charlemagne the God's yeah. show, trying to bro down. And then, of course, 25 minutes in or however many minutes in, it's revealed that, you know, Charlemagne is an investor. And then asked a great question about how might investors get, <laughs> yeah, how they get their money back. I remember that. I wanted to quote tweet that and be like, yo, spoiler alert, Charlemagne, you're not getting your money back. <laughs> you're not. Those work one way, my friend. Or There was a great, there's a band called Space that I loved so much in a uh, British band. And they had this great song. I didn't lose your money. Your money just lost you. <laughs> That's beautiful. Blah. I know you had a couple. Yeah, no, th- th- thanks for sharing this, man. I mean, the only thing I'm thinking about when I've read through the original New York Times piece and then your piece after was just like, this wasn't like a one year thing, right? Like this was going on for some time. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how many years you were there, but I'm just curious Eight. to understand. Like, Nine years. Nine years. Okay, so you're you're the person to ask. I'm curious, like, what at what point did you start to think like the numbers that they're scribbling on the whiteboard or in the the pitch deck that's going out to investors or whoever were fabricated or exaggerated? And like, yeah, I'm just curious, like, how that started happening over time. I mean, look, you know, like I said, I stayed in California because of music. I've been doing music since 1980 or 81. This is 1980. And um, it was just a really simple calculation. Like, you know, Naris, the music in, in industry, the people that give you the Grammys, they're kind of sh- a little bit shady. But, they, you know, if you had a platinum record, that means you sold, used to mean that you sold a million. And they kind of changed it and they mixed around. But let's just go with that a bit. So anybody who sold a million records is called a platinum artist, right? I could give you the, a list of 10, 10 platinum artists. And it might not be to your musical taste, but I, I'd venture a guess that not a single one of you wouldn't know somebody on that list, right? If not actually own the record somehow, you know? Um, so that would be 10 platinum artists, 10 million brain impressions, and we all know who they are. Uh, Justin Bieber, the, what's it, the, the Taylor, uh, Taylor Swift. What, these Drizzy, people. Drizzy Drake. <laughs> yeah, all right, exactly. F- Flo Rida. These are people who we know, all right? Um, take five times that, not, not just 10, take not just 20, 30, 40, take 50 million, right? How was it possible 
that four years in, that when I'm making a call to interview a subject about something, the phone conversations are like, no, this is Eugene. You know, Eugene Robinson. You know, Eugene S. Robinson, not the guy from the Washington Post. Yeah, so I'm calling from Ozzy, Ozzy Media. I wear a digital news publication from Mountain View, California that's funded by the Republican. How is it five years that I would not have immediate identification with 50 million people embracing the product? Come on. It started to smell to me. That's how long it took me for me to smell. Five to, to, to four or five years, you're like, well, you're still calling people and nobody's, nobody. Yeah. Keep in mind, I'm working also crazy, crazy right, hours. Right. Dealing with, you know, an interpersonal situation with Carlos that, that is unprecedented for me. Like I, like I said on, on, my, on, my, on my podcast, The Show Stomper, you know, the, the relationship that he and I had together, there is no man alive on the planet that I've let talk to me the way he's talked to me and fundamentally relate to me the way he's related to me. No boss, no living adult male who, you know, but, you know, at sometimes you kind of just kind of think, what is that the great line from uh, Clockwork Orange about the, you know, this is a real tragic and weepy portion of the tale. I kind of figured, you know what? Everybody's got to eat a little bit of shit in life. This is my time. Yeah. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it, you know? I got, I got, I was going through a divorce, you know, I was still doing good work that I liked. I got to do good work that I like as long as it didn't threaten, you know, this Carlos trajectory, overriding trajectory of being Carlos the star, you could pretty much do stuff that you wanted. So um, there were reasons to stay. Um, there are, so there's this perception of this reality distortion field that he was trying to project. Right. But I mean, how far away was it from like an Elon Musk or Steve Jobs who actually could bend the universe, uh, you know, materially and like create enough of a field to bring something to existence? Well, you know, my, my relationships with Steve Jobs um, have, I worked at Apple, I don't know, maybe a year and a half and were pretty convivial. I liked him. Uh, um I would, the only boss I've had that I would describe as inspirational was Andy Grove at Intel. Okay. We're pretty close, uh, pretty closely with him. Um, my bass player uh, was the number six guy hired at uh, Tesla. Okay. And he remembers when Marty Eberhardt was the CEO before he kind of moved on. And at first, you know, he worked with Musk. And he said, you know, he didn't like Musk at first, but then he came to, you know, came to, he didn't say enjoy him ever. It came to understand him. Um, but my understanding of Carlos Watson didn't cause me to enjoy him anymore. <laughs> he, um, and, and there's something, there's something that people are missing. And that's what I tried to, with the Substack and the head, tried to get across that, you know, let's not skip by the fact that I'm African-American and the worst boss I had was African-American. And indeed, a number of days ago, maybe six days ago, the last tranche of Aussie employees had a meeting and they all went around the room and, and said, um, if Carlos has never screamed at you, could you please raise your hand? And that everybody who raised their hand was white. <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't make them raise their hand. You know, that's just what they observed and they raised their hand. So it, um, I, there may have been, he was good at one thing. And I would say that was the whip. Um, early, early stage, early days, maybe you would call it inspirational in the sense that he had a, a vision of something really cool that you could just buy into. But, you know, hewing to that really cool, cool making it happen um, involved 
you know, more blood, more sweat and more tears than were really necessary, given where we're going. It makes more sense if you figure the job is to foist him on the American public. It makes less sense if it's about creating a lasting digital news media platform of value. Right. Jack, I know you're Jack. So Jack here is uh, big into audience building and has a lot of thoughts. He's very involved in kind of the Web3 stuff. Uh, Jack, do you have any questions uh, around any of that related to uh, Eugene's experience? I was actually going, just going to ask for um, Eugene. Thanks for sharing the story, man. It's amazing. Uh, I was just going to ask about your sort of your view on media at large, like how you imagine the media landscape changing from here and the idea of uh like an individual as a platform just your perspective on that outside of like an organization building up an individual into a platform and like an individual on the on building a platform by themselves correct me if i'm wrong when you when you say something like that i think of um i think of cats like joe rogan you know i i think mm-hmm. of you know, these multi-million, both multi-million dollar and multi-million fan influencers, right? I mean, yeah, I feel all fairly certain that if Joe Rogan were to say tomorrow, like it's a derivation of that line from that Woody Allen movie, Bananas, if he were to say, okay, uh, everybody should be wearing their underwear on the outside of their pants, not on the inside of their pants. <laughs> I have no doubt in my mind that you would hit the streets immediately after he said so, and that you would find walk like, "Hey, man, this is the way." I get with it. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, in other words, it's an easily abused platform. But what's significant about it, and we've seen this in the case with with Trump and 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 how the whole COVID thing has gone down, and that we're we're really in a position we're really in a position of wanting wanting fatherly stewardship um and anybody i mean keep in mind i'm going to mention some names for you and depending on how old you are it'll either resonate with you to a certain degree or not if i say something like walter cronkite yeah um, you know that's the kind of and i think fundamentally america just elected that we you know, in this great search for father, we we elected the next best thing in this instance, which was grandfather Joe. You know, we want somebody with a kind of stolid, um, you know, phlegmatic, just kind of, you know, not easily prone to certain types of excesses. We want a dad, you know, um, and we haven't had one of those really since. I mean, Nixon wasn't a dad, right? They had glimmers of that with Reagan, but he was more of a grandpa with the jelly beans and the slippers in office and forgetting stuff. Uh, you know, uh, Clinton wasn't a dad. You know, uh, uh, George W. was he? You know, the, the bruised son. So I think we're tonally in a place where we want somebody to fill that role, and we keep getting close, right? We keep getting close, but uh, you know. I think those are the people that we'd be willing to listen to. And I don't think those people are going to work fundamentally for a news organ at this point in time. You know, I mean, you know, Brian Williams had a certain amount of gravitas and he was caught lying. Right. Uh, uh, Dan Rather had that kind of gravitas and then he got his ass kicked in the, yeah, you know, the Bush the, incident, the lobby. Right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's what I think that's. That's the medium that would allow us to communicate with large numbers of people from all varying demographics. But I don't think, I mean, it opens itself up to such, you know, 
I mean, this is the thing. We're just disappointed with our fathers, right? You find yeah. you had one guy, and then you find out the guy's picking up hookers at, before the game. Yeah, no, you're just, uh, it, uh, I don't know. There's just something about, I think this is, it's probably a product of masculinity in crisis um, because there, there, are, there are plenty of, plenty of women who manage to, to hold that mantle and do a great job at it, right? I mean, I'm not a, not a super big fan of somebody like Oprah, but it um, seems like she knows what she's doing, you know? Um, but America in general is not hungering for more, more mothering, I think. They're right. hungering for fathering. And I think that that's a way to, you know, I've been, I'm sorry to drag things back to fighting, but at first I started as a hater and now I'm completely like 100% like Jake and Logan Paul you know, what they're doing for MMA fighters is pretty phenomenal in their constant and continual attempts to run at Dana White about fighter pay, which I think is a really big, significant labor issue that I've been paying attention to if we're talk- talking about news. Um, and uh, and these guys were gardening, their father's gardening business, what, you know, five years ago. Um, and so they've got a platform, they realize a certain amount of responsibility, and they're using that, the audience that they've already built to attain some sort of political ends. It could be just self-enrichment in the end. I don't know, but, um, and I don't find them fatherly at all, but they're doing things that we wish that somebody, you know, a father would do. I don't want to hear some guy just get, guy gets killed at bare knuckle boxing and then you find out how much he was getting paid for that bare knuckle boxing match. And it just makes you feel dirty Fair or, enough. you know, UFC guys. So, yeah, I think that's, it, there's a great potential for, really cool things to happen in that space. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> and then there's a great potential for abuse. Um, I would like to, in a very Nietzschean sense, get at least America past that hunger. Uh, yeah. like, having a very personal sense, you know, last time I cared what my father did or said or thought about, I must've been 20. So. Fair enough. Do you mind if I do a super quick rapid fire? I know we're, we're coming up on Go the ahead. time there. Um, you mentioned MMA a couple times. Who's the greatest MMA fighter ever? Uh, I'm going to have to go with John Jones. Uh, okay. problems or not, I need to just put that in some sort of context. John Jones had legal problems in most recent spate of legal problems in Las Vegas. He's also been, you know, hammer and tongs at it with Dana White over fighter pay. Coincidence or not? I don't know. Dana still seems to be in the pocket of Conor McGregor, a multiple accused rapist, but who am I? I'm just a viewer. Fair enough. Uh, second and uh, last one for me was uh, you, men- you mentioned Andy Grove a couple of times, and he is a legend in the Valley for how he turned around Intel and the only paranoid survived. So what, is, what was uh, kind of uh, Andy Grove's superpower and what's your, kind of your memory of him? Oh, I love, I love that guy. I, I actually was very sad when he died and he and I maintained a connection uh, uh, post, post Intel. Um, he was just really smart, man. He was just really smart and funny and, uh, uh, and amazingly enough, despite only the paranoid survive, he was a kind man, you know, um, hard and a taskmaster, but, and I wouldn't say the same about Steve jobs. I didn't find Steve jobs particularly kind. Uh Um, and nobody, nobody would would have said that, but Andy was, you know, the, uh, the gruff exterior. He was, I mean, the first time I met him, I was editor in chief of the uh, Intel's corporate publication and he like, walked by my cubicle and I see him he like walks by again. He looks in and he walks by a third time. And I like, yes. He's like, ah, are you Eugene Robinson? And I go, yeah. And he goes, Oh, I think he was surprised at the whole African-American thing. And he took the issue, the the first issue I had done for them. And he could clearly tell something 
amazing was happening. And he threw it on my desk and he had like a term paper, graded it. He said, you know, B. He gave me a B on my first issue. He said, good job. Keep it up. That's amazing. <laughs> How many would he give a shit? He was like, hey, I need to do a press conference with Jeremy at four in the morning. Can you do it? I go, yeah. He goes, well, when you get back, I go, get back. I'm not even going to go home. It doesn't make any sense. I'll just keep working till you're here. I'll come down to your cubicle. So it was just, yeah, to be able to spend time with him, it was pretty nice, pretty nice and cool. I, I, I liked it. I, out of the people I've worked for, I've had I've had other bosses that I liked, you know, as much, uh, but none that you would have heard of, but he was great. I love that. I'm, I'm, you guys have anything more? That was amazing, man. No, that was amazing, man. You've brought the energy, man. I really appreciate it. <laughs> really appreciate that. Time, man. The podcast myself, you know, so it's like. Yeah, yeah. Where can plug we it. send people? Plug where it, can, uh, yeah, where can uh, we yeah. send people? It's the Eugene S. Robinson show stomper. I, I've got like 180 versions of it out there. So um, amazing. 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 Yeah. When you're in New York, let us know, man. We're going to have to hang out. I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. yeah. Be a fun, fun guy to hang out with, man. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. looking for when you're back in Brooklyn, let us know. Yeah. We'll, we'll get together. We'll do something. Nothing legal. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start recording right now. All right, man. Thanks, Eugene, for joining. Yeah. I appreciate it, Eugene. Thank you. Eugene, thank you so much, man. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. cheers.